You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. If I asked you to name a department store, you'd probably come up with something like Walmart, JCPenney, Kohl's, Target, Sears, and the like. Now, these are all humongous chains with hundreds or thousands of stores, but this wasn't always the case. Prior to the 1920s, multi-store department store chains were highly unusual. Most stores were typically local to the market that they served. One of the earliest chains of dry goods stores was the H.B. Claflin Company. At its peak, it operated 36 stores, all under different names. Unfortunately, the company went belly up in 1914, and its remnants were split among creditors to create two new companies. The first was American Dry Goods, and they got all the good stores, and that included Lord & Taylor. The other company, Mercantile Stores, consisted of 22 of the lesser-known stores. Needless to say, Mercantile was a financial disaster from the start. Not only did the new company have to deal with the outstanding debt from the previous owner, but World War I had a major negative impact on sales. Another problem was that each store was allowed to purchase wholesale goods separately, so the decision was made to centralize all purchasing and drive down the cost. And to do this, Mercantile took a major step and purchased the William T. Knott Company in New York City, that's a purchasing company, and the idea was to centralize the purchasing and payment of goods for all of its stores. Fast forward to 1940, and the company was in need of a traveling auditor to go store to store to check over the books. They selected a Canadian accountant named Alexander Douglas Hume for the job. Hume came highly recommended and was very knowledgeable in the field. Well, on one of his assignments, Hume met the woman who would become his future wife, Hazel Ruth Vanderveer. Now, to the casual observer, these two seemed like an unlikely pair. He was short, graying at the temples, and not exactly Joe Hunk. Hazel, in comparison, was 21 years old, tall, and drop-dead gorgeous. As you soon learn, it was Hazel's beauty that would be key to Hume's downfall. Over the next few years, Hume moved up through the corporate ranks. This was in part due to his great accounting skills, which no one questioned, but also due to the fact that many qualified men were off fighting the Second World War. Hume was taken off the road, and he was put to work in Knott's main office in New York City. In 1943, he was promoted to chief accountant, and then he was promoted to assistant treasurer. 
His salary was $6,000 per year, which is nearly $85,000 today. And then there was a $500 annual bonus for his excellent work. So he was doing pretty well. I mean, he's not getting rich, but he's doing pretty well. Hume was an incredibly hard worker, and he was rarely ever home. We call him a workaholic today. He worked long into the night, and he gave up nearly every weekend for the job. Finally, in January of 1944, Hume could take no more. He complained to his boss, Mr. Casey, that he was overworked and exhausted. So he requested a few days off to go skiing with his wife up in Canada. Hume told Casey that the books were in good order and they were all ready for the annual audit. So Mr. Casey agreed to the mini vacation. Hume was due back in the office that Tuesday morning, but he was a no-show. Instead, Mr. Casey received a telegram which stated, quote, Douglas has suffered a broken leg skiing. Stop. We'll be confined here several weeks. Stop. Letter will follow. Stop. Hazel Hume. Stop. Casey wired the manager of their store in Hamilton, Ontario, asking him to check nearby hotels and hospitals for Hume, but the manager was unsuccessful. His next step was to send someone to the Hume's apartment in Jackson Heights, but once again, there was no sign of the couple. Unsure when Mr. Hume would return, Mr. Casey instructed the accounts to start their annual audit without him. And it didn't take long for them to find a discrepancy in the books. The accountants added up the piles of canceled checks, and they soon discovered that the total didn't agree with the amount of money that had been withdrawn from the company's bank account. While they still didn't have a clear picture as to how much money was missing, it was clear that someone had embezzled funds from the company. And while they still had no proof, all signs seemed to point to their missing accountant, Alexander Douglas Hume. Luckily for investigators, their bank, that's the National City Bank, which we know as Citicorp today, they kept a microfilm image of each check that they processed. They only photographed the front of the checks, so there was no way to determine who had cashed the missing checks in. This made things a little bit more difficult for the detectives, but the first check they were able to track down was made payable to a company named Avon Mills in Trenton, New Jersey. Avon Mills had an account at the Trenton Banking Company, but it was soon learned that the firm had shut down their account a few months prior. Yet, the bank still had the signature of the man who opened the account on file. It was A.D. Hume, as in Alexander Douglas Hume. All of Avon Mills' deposits, which had totaled $67,857.90, had since been transferred out. So where did the money go? To bank accounts in New York City at the National City Bank under the name A.D. Hume. In fact, not only go back to Citibank, but went back to the same exact branch that the Knott Company used for their banking. Meanwhile, accountants back at the firm were still combing through the books trying to determine just how much money had been siphoned out. They determined that $275,984.48 had been stolen between March 20th and July 8th of 1943 a very short period of time to move that much money out. A previous 1942 audit had determined that everything had balanced out for the year, 
but the accountants had some suspicions and they decided to re-examine the books. This time they found that $110,936.81 was missing. That's a total of $386,921.29, which would be about $5.5 million today. What is probably most amazing is that one, no one noticed such a large sum of money was missing, and two, not had what they presumed to be a foolproof system, you know, with numerous checks and balances in place to prevent fraud like this from ever occurring. The real answers as to what was going on could not be fully learned until investigators could locate Alexander Douglas Hume. Surprisingly, they were able to track down the suspected embezzler quite easily, but he was not where they expected him to be. It turns out that Alexander Douglas Hume was a major in the Canadian Army and he was leading his troops on the European front. In fact, he had been in the Army since 1940. Photographs that the police obtained showed that Hume did not resemble the suspect in any way, shape, or form. Yes, the suspected embezzler was also an imposter. It was back to square one. Detectives had no idea who they were looking for. For a while, it appeared that investigators were dealing with what appeared to be the perfect crime. But we all know there's no such thing. Their big break came after spending days and days just combing through the bank's records. In May of 1943, Hume asked that $15,000 be transferred to a Canadian bank. But upon careful examination of the purchase order, it was noticed that the name on the draft had been altered. Investigators were able to determine that the original name on the slip read Ralph M. Wilby. Bingo! Suddenly, all the pieces of the puzzle seemed to fall into place. Ralph Marshall Wilby was a career criminal whose expertise was, get this, embezzlement. Now before I tell you how he did it and the end of the story, let me give you a little background on the man. Wilby was born on January 20th of 1905 in Western Canada. Between the years of 1927 and 1928, Wilby was employed by the Toronto office of the Brazilian Traction Light and Power Company as their bookkeeper. While employed there, he noticed that a number of checks that had been mailed to Harold Wallace in London had been returned as undeliverable. It was later learned that Wallace was deceased and that his estate was unaware of his stock ownership of the company. While working at the power company, Wilby was able to obtain a copy of Wallace's signature. He then left the firm and moved across the border to Buffalo, New York, and from there he mailed $1 along with a forged copy of Wallace's signature to a Toronto bank requesting that an account be opened under that assumed name. His next step was to write to his former employer and request that all of Wallace's previous and future dividends be forwarded to that bank account. Wilby would visit the Toronto bank regularly, and he would transfer the money to five other banks under additional aliases. He accidentally confused the different assumed names and was nabbed by police in September of 1930 for the theft of $1,300.42. That'd be about $19,000 adjusted for inflation. 
He was convicted of grand larceny and he was sent to a reformatory for a period of one year. Upon his release, Wilby moved to Norfolk, Virginia, and he secured a job as a bookkeeper using his real name. He married an attractive woman and they stayed together until 1935. That's when he was caught in another embezzlement scheme. Somehow he got the charges dropped and he was deported back to Canada. Marriage number one was annulled. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Soon Wilby was back in the United States doing what he did best, you know, stealing other people's money. This time he assumed the name of James W. Ralston Jr., don't know where he got that name from, and he was appointed to be both secretary and treasurer of a Chevrolet car dealership in San Francisco. After four years of hard work, he parted with the company on good terms, and he moved with his new wife, that's 27-year-old Elaine Baer, to Colton, California. It was announced in the newspaper he was partnering with George Blyson to open a car dealership there. Now, running a car dealership is a great idea, but Wilby could never resist the temptation to use his accounting skills to con a company out of its money. In March of 1939, he simply strolled into a San Diego car dealership and he introduced himself as an auditor from General Motors, you know, corporate headquarters. He then proceeded to look over the company's books and he confirmed that everything checked out. And he then just walked out the door with $800 he had taken from the company's petty cash. What Wilby was unaware of at the time was that a real General Motors auditor was examining the books of the dealership he had previously worked for back in San Francisco and discovered that they had been swindled out of $10,000. That's about $175,000 today. Wilby was arrested and given 10 years probation. Of course, he was kicked out of the country once again, and wife number two had the marriage annulled. It wasn't long before Wilby was planning his next swindle. He placed ads in various trade magazines seeking a qualified accountant, and he received numerous applications, but the one that he was most impressed by, and you can probably guess this one, was one from a man named Alexander Douglas Hume. Hume had worked for a number of New York companies, and he provided excellent references. A few weeks later, Hume notified Wilby that he was withdrawing his application because he had opted to join the Canadian Army. Almost immediately, Wilby assumed Alexander Douglas Hume's identity, and he headed to New York City with Hume's work experience and excellent references in hand. And that's how he landed the job at the William T. Knott Company. Police were able to piece together all this information quite rapidly, but there was still one big question. Where was Ralph Marshall Wilby? They couldn't find him. Perhaps the biggest obstacle in locating him was that there were no known photographs of Wilby. 
In fact, while I was researching the story, which was a major news event in the 1940s, I never came across a single photo of the man. A little investigative work by detectives back then established that Ralph and Hazel socialized with just one couple in New York City. And those were their neighbors in Jackson Heights, and as luck would have it, they did have one photograph of Wilby holding their baby. The couple also recalled that Wilby spoke very fondly of British Columbia. That photograph was duplicated and widely distributed across Canada. There was a $1,000 reward offered for his capture, and while Wilby had a face that could get lost in a crowd, his statuesque wife Hazel just stood out like a sore thumb. That's when a photographer from the Victoria Times spotted the stunning Mrs. Hume just standing in a crowded lobby of the Empress Hotel in Victoria. A female reporter questioned what he was gawking at, and he just pointed over to Hazel. So the reporter examined the hotel's register to identify the couple, and a mention of their sighting was published in the society column of the newspaper. When the item was reprinted in a Toronto newspaper, an observant stenographer at the Toronto Offices of Travelers Insurance, that's the company that had bonded Knott and Sue to lose $300,000 if they couldn't find Wilby, she recognized the name and notified the police. The Victoria Police went to the hotel to arrest Wilby, only to find out that the couple had already checked out. But for some unknown reason, the couple returned to the hotel a few days later, and Wilby was finally arrested. He had been on the run for 58 days. Hazel had also been taken into custody, but it was soon determined she had no knowledge of the embezzlement. Her husband did not admit to his real name until they crossed the border into Canada for that supposed skiing trip. Wilby told her he had no choice but to hide his identity from her because he had previously gone over the border without the necessary paperwork and he had been deported. He also told Hazel he had inherited a nice chunk of money from a great aunt, had increased its value greatly in the stock market, but he never paid tax on his earnings. Thus, he felt he had to leave the United States to avoid getting caught. When he was arrested, Wilby had just $3.06 in his possession. Yet, he hired the best lawyers and they put up a really good fight in an attempt to prevent his extradition. There was appeal after appeal. They appeared in court on 23 separate occasions at a cost to Wilby of $80,000. That's about $1.1 million today. Wow. It was while they were preparing another appeal to his case that two New York City detectives took advantage of this lull and they grabbed him while he was traveling on a Vancouver ferry and they brought him back to Anacortes, Washington on July 24th of 1944 aboard a small fishing boat. Basically, they kidnapped him. He was locked up in the Tombs Prison of Manhattan and he refused to cooperate for several weeks. Then he made an incredible deal with the Travels Insurance Company. He would tell them where the money was buried in exchange for $10,000. Now, who would ever agree to that, right? Well, amazingly, they agreed to the deal. They handed Wilby a certified check for $10,000, and he began to tell everything. First up, of course, was letting the authorities know where the money was. 
He drew a map indicating the number of steps one needed to pace out from an oak tree along a highway in Victoria to find the first stash. The second was the number of steps from a window behind a house that the couple had rented in Vancouver. At that location, two tin cans were dug up. One can contained over $200,000 in bonds and war savings certificates. The other contained $95,000 in U.S. currency. Now that much of the loot had been recovered, the question still remained as to how he pulled off such a large heist without anyone ever noticing. First, as I pointed out earlier, it was no easy task to steal from the William T. Knott Company. Their purchasing system was loaded with all types of checks and balances to prevent a theft from occurring. And from what I was able to piece together, there were over 20 individual steps taken between the time a purchase order was issued and the time that final payment was made to the vendor. And of course, there were different offices within the Knock Company that handled different portions of the process. Only a person with intimate knowledge and unlimited access to the entire system could ever dream of circumventing it. And of course, that man was Ralph Marshall Wilby. Without getting too technical, and if you're curious, there is a detailed explanation in the June 1953 issue of the Internal Auditor, what Wilby did was he altered a number of invoices, what they called aprons, by changing the name of the vendor and highly inflating the dollar amount. He would then create an additional apron to match what the individual department store had originally submitted. Wilby was also able to operate the company's complex punch card and check signing machines, keep in mind this is in the days before computers, and that gave him easy access to cook the books. When checks were cashed, he was in a position to destroy the evidence. But his ability to falsify, insert, and remove orders was just one piece of the puzzle. The other was that he was able to charge the stolen funds to expense and freight accounts at each store. That's because these particular costs were not always known beforehand, so will be assumed correctly that padding these accounts would probably never be noticed by anyone. Well, pretty much anyone. There was one manager who did complain about the increased expenses to a supervisor, but he in turn passed it on to Wilby to handle. And what did he do? He simply made some adjustments and provided some explanation as to what had happened. The real trick to making this all work was the dummy companies that Wilby set up around the country to receive those checks. Now, the names of these firms came right out of his imagination, and they included Bailey Fabrics, Godshell Manufacturing Company, Ed Stander Company, the Package Delivery Service, Avon Mills, as I mentioned, and many others. Starting in 1942, Wilby rented office space around the country to house these fictitious businesses. Basically, these offices consisted of a desk and a part-time secretary to receive the mail, but never to open it. And since he knew exactly where the checks were being mailed to and when, Wilby would simply get out of work every Friday afternoon, board a train to that city, you know, pick up the checks, and then deposit them in a local bank by noon on Saturday. Amazingly, every Monday morning he was back sitting at his desk, you know, and they had no suspicion of what he was doing. 
As you can imagine, this routine of traveling to city after city every weekend got old quickly. So in 1943, he set up offices for just three fictitious companies. That's Avon Mills, which I've mentioned, Eastern Mills, and York Mills, all were located in Trenton, New Jersey, which was nearby. Yet, it was one of those original 1942 companies that ultimately caused Wilby to flee. The problem was that he had opened a bank account in St. Louis under the name of Frederick B. Hecht. Now, under normal circumstances, this wouldn't be a problem, but this was during World War II. And having a bank account under a German name that moved large sums of money in and out was sure to raise some suspicion. Soon, the FBI was at Wilby's door, and oddly, they never suspected him of embezzlement. Instead, they had become convinced that Hecht was a Nazi fifth columnist, and they were simply asking Wilby questions to help them ensnare their suspect, who of course didn't really exist. And that's when Wilby got a little bit nervous and decided to pack it in and flee to Canada with the loot. Wilby pled guilty to the embezzlement charges and he was sentenced to a five to seven year term at Sing Sing Prison. During the trial, Hazel testified, quote, When I married my husband, I didn't know how much money he had. She continued, I asked him one time and very politely he refused to answer my question. I thought perhaps I was being a little too inquisitive and therefore I never asked him again. And just as his first two wives had done, Hazel had the marriage annulled. No shock there. She did become a fashion model for a while, but ultimately remarried. From what I was able to piece together, it looks like she passed away on June 23rd of the year 2000. And as for our master embezzler, Ralph Marshall Wilby was released from prison on July 24th of 1951, and he was immediately deported to Fort Erie in Ontario. He died at 66 years of age on July 12th of 1971 in Pentacon, British Columbia. He had once said, quote, The worst and only crime I committed in my life was to steal money from a large corporation. He continued, They did not even miss it, so my injury to anyone was practically nil. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. Well, Miss Hoffer, I just don't know where to begin. Well, what's the trouble? I just had one of those sun-kissed naval oranges you brought along with you from California, and boy, it was good. Maybe I ought to start out by telling how sun-kissed oranges are especially selected to be the pick of the crop, or how out there in California and Arizona, the year-round sunshine and cool nights, the fertile soils and scientific care have put real extras in those big golden oranges. Extra flavor and extra health. Well, that's a pretty good start. No, that's not telling half enough. All I can say is that you'd better run, don't walk, to your nearest fresh fruit dealer and ask him to give you at least two dozen sun-kissed oranges fast. Remember, they're seedless. Best for juice and every use. And this winter, the finest you have ever enjoyed. Well, if I use slang, I'd say, boy, you said a mouthful. That commercial for Sunkissed Oranges is from the December 3rd, 1940 broadcast of the Hedda Hopper Show. This particular episode told the life story of actress Dorothy L'Amour. For those of you who don't know, Hedda was one of the two most popular gossip columnists of her day. The other was her arch rival, Luella Parsons. 
Hedda's show started its run on the CBS network on November 6th of 1939 and ran on various networks up through the early 1950s. Personally, I remember her best for her 1955 appearance on I Love Lucy. If Hedda Hopper sounds like a fictitious name, that is partly true. Hopper really was her last name. But her real name, at least what she was born with, was Elda Furry. In 1913, she became the fifth wife of actor DeWolf Hopper. Now, her name Elda sounded too much like that of his former wives. They were Edna, Ella, Ida, and Nella. Since he would occasionally call her by the name of one of his previous wives, Elda sought out a numerologist to come up with a new name. And from that point on, she became Hedda Hopper. As for Sunkist, it was a cooperative formed by California citrus growers on August 29th of 1893. Prior to this, growers had to sell their crops through distributors and other middlemen who had little interest in promoting citrus fruits. By creating the California Fruit Growers Exchange, the farmers could both earn more money and better control demand for their fruits. After launching the first ever marketing campaign for a perishable commodity in 1909, sales increased dramatically. Their advertising agency, that was Lord & Thomas, suggested that they use the term sun-kissed to market their product, but it was changed to sun-kissed so that they would have better trademark protection. Today, Sunkiss seems to be the orange market, whether through actual fruits themselves, its juices, or their licensed products. What I was surprised to find out was that they are a cooperative of 6,000 members from California and Arizona. Somehow, in the back of my head, I always had this thought that their oranges came from, you know where, Florida. Which leads me to the following question. Do you know when the first citrus seeds were planted in California? Now, coming up with an exact year would be difficult, but see if you can come up with an approximate time period, you know, at least by decade. If you hang around for a few minutes, I'll let you know the answer. In other news, here are a few stories from the 1950s that have something to do with, at least they loosely have something to do with, flying. Four-year-old Kenneth Patrick Ward was a big fan of sci-fi television programs. He kept telling his mother that one day he's going to fly out the window and off into space. Well, that day came on March 18th of 1954 in Brooklyn, New York. Kenneth climbed out a window in his family's apartment and prepared for takeoff. It was estimated that he was about 25 feet or 7.6 meters off the ground. Luckily, a 16-year-old girl named Marilyn Schroth spotted Kenneth just as he was about to leap, and she ran along the sidewalk to catch him. His rocket ship made a perfect landing in her arms. Both Kenneth and Marilyn were unharmed, but unfortunately for Kenneth, his career as an astronaut was forever grounded. Back in November of 1957, the children of Jose Quaninio were playing around and making a lot of noise in their upstairs bedroom, which was located at 2018 Jasmine Courts in Corpus Christi, Texas. Suddenly, Dad heard all three children screaming outside the house. How did they get there? Well, it seems they had all been bouncing on the bed and they all bounced right out the second floor window. They landed on the concrete sidewalk below. Jose, age three, and Esmeraldo, age four, 
Both received head injuries, but they were reported to be in stable condition at the hospital. Noah, age two, was uninjured, but was held for further observation. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And in our last story for today... Fred G. Thompson and his nine-year-old daughter Connie were in their Portland, Oregon living room on May 12, 1957 when, well, uh, it's probably best that we let Fred describe exactly what had happened. Quote, we were sitting there working a crossword puzzle when suddenly it sounded like the house was blowing up. My daughter screamed and we looked around behind us and there was the body on the floor only five feet from us. Not only was there a dead man just a short distance from them, they also had a big hole in the roof of their house and a living room chair was destroyed. Quote, it was so sudden we couldn't figure out what had happened. The body was identified as 21-year-old Willis Allen Wood, who was enrolled as a senior at Oregon State College. He'd been flying a Mooney Might Light airplane over the neighborhood when the plane suddenly disintegrated at an estimated altitude of 2,000 feet, or 610 meters. Wood's body destroyed their home, but the plane itself did no physical damage to the property. Witnesses said that the plane's engine had sputtered, followed by the plywood and fabric wings just falling off. Its fuselage landed in a nearby garden. So, did you know when the first citrus seeds were planted in California? While it seems like a natural place for them to have always grown, farmers did not plant the first citrus seeds until 1840. The crops were planted because citrus was excellent at battling scurvy, a preventative that was supposedly first discovered by Vasco da Gama's crew in 1497, but word did not spread. It has been estimated that scurvy killed 2 million sailors between 1500 and 1800. It was James Lind, a Scottish surgeon in the Royal Navy, who first proved in 1753 that citrus could be used to do so. By 1880, California was growing 3,000 acres of citrus. That increased to 40,000 acres in 1893, and compare that with the 271,000 800 acres detailed in the 2016 California Citrus Acreage Report. Well, that brings this episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. I hope you enjoyed the story on uh, Ralph Wilby. It's one of my favorite stories of all time. I've been working on it on and off over the years, and it was only recently I decided to pull all the pieces together and crank out the story. You can find additional true stories just like the one you heard on my website, which is uselessinformation.org, 
and in the two books that are written by me, Steve Silverman. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Of course, you can go on Facebook and like the show. I really appreciate it if you do so. All you have to do is go to Facebook and do a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast. Anyway, thank you for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.